Elise Hooper, thank you so much for joining me on Alternate Histories. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, very glad to have you. Um, if you could start, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I understand that you teach both uh, high school history and literature, uh, both of which kind of feed into writing historical fiction. Yes, I've been teaching for many years, teaching high school. At the moment, I'm actually not teaching high school, uh, but I am still teaching writing. So I work with uh, Hugo House here in Seattle, which is a place for, for writers of all ages. And so I teach through them now. Uh, and this is not your first book. How did you get started into publishing fiction? Well, gosh, that is a great, that's a funny story. I had always been interested. I, I come to writing as a reader. I've always been a big reader. And I grew up right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and so I was right in the neck of the woods of the Alcotts and, in fact, went to what's called Orchard House, which was Louisa May Alcott's family home, and now it's a museum dedicated to her. I went to that a lot as a kid. I went to drama camp there and did the holiday open houses. And, and really, by visiting that home and seeing that little desk where uh, Alcott wrote Little Women, it, it really opened my eyes to the fact that people write books. They don't just magically appear on bookshelves. And, and so I was just always interested in writing a book. It just took me a few decades to get my courage up. And so that first book I wrote, which had been kind of kicking around in my mind for many, many years, was The Other Alcott. And that is about the Alcott sisters, specifically the one we know as Amy from Little Women. In real life, May, which is who Amy is based on, had a fascinating life as a professional artist herself. And it's kind of one of the few stories in history, I feel like, where we have a woman overshadowed by a more famous woman. Um, usually it's a woman kind of living in the shadow of her more famous husband or father or brother or what have you. But in the case of the Alcott sisters, both of them were very accomplished. And so that was my first book. And then I found myself writing about Dorothea Lange, who is a photographer of the 1930s. Well, her, she's most famous for her work of the 1930s, I should say. And she is someone who, when I tell people I was writing a book about Dorothea Lange, I'd get a blank stare. And then when I pull up her most famous photo called Migrant Mother on my... I've seen that oh, photo. Everyone knows that photo. I mean, yeah. that's a photo that's in history books and everything. And so she was a fascinating subject and lived at such an interesting time and was so ahead of her times in many ways, and she's still very relevant to today. And so I had written my first two book about artists, and then this third one, I was actually kind of in the early stages of pondering a book about the Dickinson sisters, like Emily Dickinson, the poet, but my younger daughter, who is a swimmer, had to do a, pro a project for her library class in fourth grade, and she picked Gertrude Ederly to do a biography on. And I had never heard of Ederly. She was a 1924 Olympic swimming champ. She had several medals. And she then was the first woman to swim the English Channel. And she was really feted as a big deal in the 1920s when she came home. President Wilson called her America's best girl. And she had parades in her honor. And she became a real public figure there for a few years. And, 
And that really got me thinking about women athletes and just how little we know about many of these pioneering women who really have blazed the trail for the rest of us. I mean, anyone who plays on a high school team now, if you go out for a run along the street, we really have these early women to thank for breaking down the barriers of um, letting us participate in these things legally. And, and, and all, they just change public perceptions in so many ways. Yeah, the so, idea of, of women athletes in the early 1900s is, um, yeah, it's something that doesn't really get talked about a whole lot. So when I, I, I saw your book, the, the novel we're going to talk about, Fast Girls, um, about women in the 1936 uh, Olympic team, uh, I thought that's just fascinating. Something I'd, uh, you know, I'd never really uh, done any research into before. So can you tell us about um, what's in your novel? Yes, I, I was right there with you. I knew very little. Um, although I ran track in high school and have run marathons. I mean, this was something that I felt like I knew a lot about running. And I had watched the Boston Marathon for years growing up and cheered on Joan Benoit. But I didn't really know anything about the generations that came before this. So I, when I, when my daughter was working on this project about Ederly, I started digging around and the first runner I found was Betty Robinson. So my novel Fast Girls, I should back up and say is about three, it focuses on three runners of this period. But really, of course, there are a lot of other peripheral athletic figures in the book. And but these are real I, historical figures? Yes, all based on historical figures. A one in my book is kind of a composite figure based on a few. And I write, I have an afterword in the novel in which I describe some changes I did make to the historical record to make this work a little better for a book. But but really, um, actually, I would have to say that the most remarkable aspects of the story are the truest. Um, so, which is kind of amazing because these women, the obstacles they overcame were tremendous. I mean, Betty Robinson was discovered in 1928. She was running for the train late to get home or something. And one of her teachers spotted her and thought to himself, wow, she looks really fast. And he offered the next day to time her while she was running. And lo and behold, she had this remarkable sprinting time. So he, uh, I should say that Illinois banned women from competing in uh, high school athletics in about 1906, I think. So there were some legal obstacles that had to become overcome. But uh, Betty ended up only a few races later qualifying for the Olympic team in 1928 that would be going to Amsterdam. And, and this is really notable because while women had been competing in the Olympics as early as 1900 in what were considered what they called aesthetic only sports like tennis and golf and sailing, and you can see a trend here of kind of upper class sports. Um, 1928 was the year that women were being invited on kind of a provisional basis to run in track and field. And this was really quite something because it was considered a bit blue blue collar a kind of a little lower class um these runners you know they weren't necessarily they were going to be working hard we were going to see tired looking women and believe it or not that was a real objection that especially journalists had at the time no one wanted to see women looking tired so so betty finds herself in amsterdam and and Honestly, this is 
I think I'd need to go back and check my notes, but maybe her fifth race. So it was a quick trajectory to the Olympics in 1928 versus today when athletes train for, for almost all of their lives to compete. Um, but Betty was a real underdog, yet she came out on top. She surprised everyone by winning a gold medal. So she was the first woman to win a gold medal in the first time track and field was ever offered. And then she comes home, like Ederly, really feted as kind of America's sweetheart, America's best girl. And in a few years, as she's preparing for the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles, she is in a plane crash. And she is left for dead. In fact, her body is transported to an undertaker who thinks, you know, who takes a look at her and kind of starts preparing her, but notices her chest is moving. And they realize she is alive. And she is told by her doctors when they start mending her both of her broken legs and her broken arm, you'll be lucky to ever walk again. You have to give up your dreams about running. But Betty was not one to be deterred. And she comes back. She has this amazing comeback story and competes in these 1936 Olympics, which in themselves are such an interesting time because, of course, this was Adolf Hitler's Nazi games in Berlin in 1936. And so we also have Louise Stokes, she was known as the Malden Meteor, and she was a black girl running in this small town, Malden, outside of Boston, and she too kind of starts rising up through the racing kind of ranks over a couple of years and qualifies for the 1932 Olympics team to head to Los Angeles. She and another woman named Tidy Pickett are one of two of the first uh, black women to qualify for the American Olympics team. They go to Los Angeles and they start they start realizing that the chances of them running start looking threatened because all along the way, other white girls are added to this relay pool that they were members of. They have some suspense there if they're going to be racing and at the last minute they are pulled in favor of some other white girls to run because they didn't have some coaches acting there as advocates. Uh, it was, they, you start to see what we now call as privilege, of course, they were really trying to blaze a trail that almost didn't exist for them at that time. Between a combination of racism and sexism, they are discriminated against. But Louise does not give up, even though she is profoundly disappointed by this experience in 1932. And she sets her sights also on 1936. And so our final racer, Helen Stevens, the Fulton Flash from Missouri, she uh, was a farm girl in rural Missouri. She grew up really at the height of the Depression. Her father did not support this idea of her running at all. He just wanted her to work in the local shoe factory or help around the farm. But Helen was a truly gifted athlete. Her stride was one of about nine feet, which is really remarkable to think about. Wow. Um, yeah, she was unstoppable. And she quickly rises up as America's best hope at winning a gold in these 1936 Olympics for the women. And so really, Louise and Betty and Helen all kind of form the focus of this story that's all about the this effort of women to break beyond the barriers put in their place and to exceed society's expectations at a time when really no one had very high expectations at all of them. Well, if these figures don't lead themselves to a, a compelling story, I don't know what does. You, you have them <laughs> overcoming know. you know, social pressures and racism and sexism and, and personal athletic injuries. Yes. Very, yes. very interesting people. 
Yeah, they really, I mean, as I was doing all this research, I couldn't believe I'd never heard of these women. I mean, the stories are beyond dramatic. Uh, Helen, especially when she gets to Berlin, I mean, Hitler becomes very interested in her, insists in a person to person meeting, a face to face meeting. He invites her away for the weekend. I mean, it's sort of beyond belief, really, what happens. Now, what kind of research did you have to do to bring the 1936 games to life? Oh, well, that's a great question. I, I really had my work cut out for me by writing about three different Olympics and uh, with a cast of characters, of course, that's that's pretty extensive, all the supporting figures that come in and out of the story. But I started off by reading there's some great nonfiction books about um, these women and other women of this era who are athletes. Uh, I read a lot about the Olympics and I was really lucky in the sense that while women's athletics weren't particularly well documented, as we know from so many other stories of this time, the Nazis were great chroniclers of everything they did. And so the official report that they produced about these 1936 games is fascinating. And it it has blueprints for all the different facilities. It has extensive reports with data about numbers of how many participants were there and audience and countries. And they just, they had everything in this report. So that was an excellent resource. Some of these women who competed, these Americans, produced uh, some great oral histories that resided in a, a Los Angeles, there's a, a foundation that supports this Olympic history. And um, I also was in touch with many librarians and archivists throughout the country uh, who would, were generous enough to send me uh, pages from yearbooks. Um, I was in touch with someone at Northwestern University, which is where Betty went. And he sent me all kinds of great stories from their school newspaper. I worked with Helen Stevens' biographer, who was an amazing resource. And she actually invited me to Missouri, where I was able to visit the Helen Stevens collection at the Historical Society there and hold her track shoes in my very hands and read her handwritten diary from Berlin in 1936. And so it really was. Yeah, I mean, it was so exciting. So I really got to I, I dove in from a lot of different angles to really understand understand all of the different things that were in play here, because there really were so many. I mean, this is just, again, such a fascinating time in terms of the Great Depression and what's happening with race and and gender. And I mean, I, I really could have written, you know, another, a second book to this about what happens to their lives even after the Olympics. It really was just fascinating. And now, of course, you know, a lot of the issues that these women um, struggled against, they still exist today, um, you know, albeit somewhat different. But what, what's your hope for someone reading your novel that they might that they might gain from from learning about these women and their ordeal with the uh, early Olympics? Yes, that is such a good question. I mean, I think the biggest thing is certainly just to, I I think these women are very inspiring. We have so much to learn from their tenacity because they really did keep persisting despite all the things being thrown up against them. But I think the other big takeaway is, while yes, of course, there has been great progress, um, we still do not have an equal number of events open to men and women at the Olympics. There could still be more women in positions of leadership with the IOC. And and then beyond the Olympics, of course, there's still so much to be thought about in terms of uh, abuse and coaches. That is definitely something that comes up in this story. And also uh, when we 
talk about pay parity for, I mean, that's been a big topic in today's news and coaching opportunities for women. Helen Stevens, after the Olympics, became the first uh, woman manager and owner of a semi-professional basketball team. And she was someone who dedicated her entire life to sports. And, and really by understanding her life, you see how limited uh, the opportunities were for women to get be sponsored and be paid for their accomplishments. And so while great progress has been made from 1936, there is still a lot of room for us to reward the, the women athletes who are competing and trying to make a livelihood from their talents today. Well, Elise, I, I just think that just this, think is, this a, is a wonderful book and it, it's a very timely book. Um, unfortunately, this year, you know, we're not going to have a 2020 uh, Olympic Games due to the coronavirus. But, uh, you know, if someone wants to um, enjoy a little bit of um, uh, insight into Olympics over the summer, uh, where can they get a copy of your book and immerse themselves in a historical Olympic Games? Oh, well, thank you for asking that. Of course, I was hoping to ride the coattails off the Olympics this summer. And yes, that has definitely changed. Um, the, the book Fast Girls is available starting on July 7th. It's available for pre-order now anywhere books are sold. So, of course, I always encourage readers to support their local businesses, their local bookstores now more than ever, um, but really anywhere that, that books are sold. Online retailers, big box, it, it should be everywhere you can find a book. And hopefully even a few places maybe you don't expect to see books. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Elise Hooper, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.